you have a Bible, open up to Deuteronomy chapter 4. We continue on into this new study through Deuteronomy. It's been a while, 16 years since we were here last. 16 years, why'd you wait so long? Well, we had the rest of the Bible to work our way through. Deuteronomy chapter 4, these are the words. These are the words. Hadevarim. The Jewish title of the book, as we talked about last week, Ha Devarim, these are the words, and this is the final sermon of Moses, and we're in the retrospective section. I told you there's a four-part outline we're, we're going to kind of use here, and, and this retrospective is the first four chapters as Moses looks back all the way to Egypt and tracks all the way forward to their, their placement on the plains of Moab across from Jericho, just outside the promised land. 40-year journey that Moses now begins to review and talk about and, and remind them of. But I tell you again this morning, these are words to take to heart. Words to take to heart. That's why we've entitled this whole study that, because heart is used so much, is such a focus of the book, and if you miss that, then you will miss the whole thing. Words to take to heart. Verse 32, again, I opened up with this earlier, but listen to it once again. Verse 32 of chapter 4, indeed ask now concerning the former days which were before you. Since the day that God created man on the earth, and inquire from one end of the heaven, heavens to the other, has anything been done like this great thing, or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard and survived? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does it do to your heart when you hear the name Jesus? When you stop in the midst of craziness and insanity in life and you think the name Jesus, when someone speaks the name of Jesus, or when you pray in Jesus' name, by the way, as a show of respect and honor and awe, it is never Jesus's. I'm just telling you right now, this is one of those things that bugs Pastor Rick. When people say, oh yeah, Jesus's disciples, or Jesus's boat, or Jesus's book, it's never Jesus's. It is only Jesus. They were called Jesus' disciples. It would be Jesus' boat if he ever owned a boat, which he didn't. And you pray in Jesus' name. You don't pray in Jesus' name. And you might think, Rick, what's the difference? It's just words. It is the name of Jesus. And I'm speaking from a kind of an old-school, classical English perspective that you don't say Jesus's. You can put a little apostrophe there if you're writing, but you say in Jesus' name, or these are Jesus' things, or you are Jesus' people. 
but not the awkward, bizarre Jesuses that I, I hear it too much. It, it bugs me about as much as people calling it the book of Revelations. <laughs> you know this. By the way, there are 66 books in the Bible. One, the... Okay, that was really lame. But it was actually a little bit better than first service. Let's try it again. There are 66 books in the Bible. One, the... of. That's a little bit better. One more time. We got to get this. There are 66 books in the Bible. One, the of Jesus Christ. Amen. One revelation. It's all about Jesus. And my friends, Jesus is worthy of all honor and respect and awe more than we could ever give him. Jesus didn't just earn the honor of awe, like you might earn an honor, you might work for something and, and be honored for it, not Jesus. Yes, he earned it through going to the cross, but he had it, that the glory is intrinsically his. It's always been his, it will always be his, it is of his divine nature, and should we forget, just listen to this description I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. This is John writing in the book of Revelation, chapter one, verse 12. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, like a son of man, but clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash, his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. His voice, like the sound of many waters, in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Jesus, awesome, glorified, the one that we honor. By the way, notice that first John heard the voice, then he saw Jesus. That's how it works. You hear first before you see, and I'll talk about that more in a minute. But what I want you to get is we open up Deuteronomy chapter four here, and yes, this is all ultimately about Jesus, is that until Jesus emptied himself, Philippians chapter two tells us, laying aside his power and his glory, to become like a son of man, until that happened, we had no idea of what God really looked like. No clue. Now, we just went through a series talking about heaven and hell, if you recall that recently. And, and what we noted was we saw a lot of heavenly things. We saw some amazing things, angels and, and the throne and, and even his garments, but we did not see God. No description of God. The closest we get to a description of God in the Hebrew scriptures is in Daniel chapter seven, verse nine, which tells us that his hair was like wool. I don't even know what that means, to be honest. His hair was like pure wool. The idea is white, and of course, John repeats that in the Revelation. His head and his hair were white like white wool. Aside from that, no physical description, no depiction, no graphical portrait of Yahweh at all. Who is this God that we follow? What does he look like? We don't know. Let's go back to Sinai. Because that's what Moses does here. We see the first experience that this people had with Yahweh, with their God, the very first time, and what they had was hearing. 
Words without voice. Words without form. Actually, words without form. There was a voice, so you wouldn't have heard the words. Words without form. Check this out. Chapter 4, verse 10. Deuteronomy 4.10. Remember, Moses says, the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children hear and fear. Not see. There is no see here. It's fear. They need to learn to fear me. This is one many of us have been working through and thinking through for years and years. What does it mean to fear the Lord and and fear God? And just when we think we have the answer, something bigger hits us. Listen, we learn to fear the Lord not because God needs our reverence, but because we need to learn to fear the Lord. And it's just as we said last week about his glory. His glory changes me. God doesn't say worship me. God doesn't say glorify me because he's so pathetic that he needs us to glorify him. We need to glorify him. We need to fear him. It does something to me, changes me. It works my heart when I come into that position of fearing the Lord. I worship him, and as we fear him, we become who we were supposed to be. He alters our hearts, our attitude, our position before him, and we become the humble children of God that he desires us to be. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do, that is who fear him, his praise endures forever. Now, the thing is, secular culture doesn't get this. The world does not understand this idea of the fear of the Lord. In fact, it would be viewed as religious control or manipulation. Fear the Lord. Be afraid of the Lord. And pastors using that to get people to, you know, get into a position of subservience and and fear themselves and even fearing the pastor (laughs) as if that was a possibility here. Fear the Lord. And, And the world says, yeah, that's just, that's cultish. That's controlling. Hey, the thing about the fear of the Lord is this. And I'm gonna give you four things to jot down if you'd like to. And the first is, we choose to fear the Lord. It is not controlling. It is not coercive. It is chosen. The fear of the Lord is a chosen thing. Proverbs 1, verse 27. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. Then they will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because... They hated knowledge, and they did not choose to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is chosen. It is something you come to desire. And I can prove it. Think about how he presented himself. He didn't present himself in all his power and glory and splendor and majesty and might. He has remained unseen, without form. He said to Moses, you can't see my face and live, Moses. And if God were to present himself before the children of Israel at Mount Horeb, it would have flattened them, wiped them out, and they would have feared without choosing to fear at all. If God showed up here this morning before you and me, we would be absolutely terrified. I'm talking to people of faith. We'd be terrified by him, but we don't see him. We don't see the form. Interesting to me. 
God understands this, that, that if we saw him like Isaiah, like John did, we would pass out in cold, dead terror. And so he says, let them learn to fear me. Let them learn. How do we learn to fear him? We hear him. I fear him and I hear him. I hear him and I learn to fear him. Because ultimately what it's all about is God knows, God knows we need the kind of relationship that only he can give us. Now we all have relationships. You're sitting with friends and family right now here this morning. You have relationships with other people. I hate to tell you this, but I'm gonna. Human relationships will always come up short. Always. Now, you can have a great relationship, husbands, with your wife. At some point, she's gonna disappoint you. Sorry, wives. Wives, you can have a great relationship with your husband, guaranteed he's gonna disappoint you. Not because he wants to, not because she desires to, but because we're human and we're fallible and we're frail, we will disillusion one another in relationship, we will disappoint in relationship, and ultimately, even in the perfect human relationship, death puts an end to it. Not with the Lord. See, God calls us into a relationship that is eternally satisfying. And yes, if I were to lose my wife this week, I know I would see her, be with her again after the end or when we're called up. I know, I know that I would join her in the clouds to see the Lord in the air and, and forever be with the Lord. But the point is this, God alone eternally satisfies in a relationship where no one else can. And so he says, I, I, need, I need them to know me. They need to know me to have what I've created for them, which is this idea of being in a satisfying, fulfilling relationship. That's where we start to find our meaning in life, is as we learn to fear and to hear God. Watch this, verse 11. You came near, Moses says, and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens. Darkness, cloud, thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. And we know from reading Exodus, it was terrifying. And they didn't even see him. They just saw the fire going up from the mountain. They're gathered around, shaken in their boots. Ultimately, they would say to Moses, you talk to him. If we keep hearing his voice, we're gonna die. They were overwhelmed simply by the voice of God, having not even seen him. And I want you to note, this is really important, so you might want to circle it in your Bibles. You can even write it in the margin. I know I give you a lot of Hebrew words, but this is one that you've got to know. This phrase is highly significant. In the Hebrew, the phrase burned with fire in verse 11 is boer baesh. So if you're writing it down, just write B-O-E-R, boer, B apostrophe, and then aish. However you want to write that, A-Y-S-H, Transliterate it. Boer Baesh. Boer Baesh is so significant, and I'll explain why in a minute, but it translates not just, we're not just talking about burning fire, blazing fire. Boer means blazing. Fire out of control, as it were. This blazing fire, think about it, they're around the foot of Mount Sinai, and this blazing fire is just going straight up into heaven. And out from it, billowing thick clouds and, and darkness, a foreboding or description of, of cloud and darkness and thick gloom. I mean, this is an amazing, immense, intense experience of the people of Israel gathered here as they're in the presence of God. It is absolutely overwhelming. 
This foreboding description we see again and again in Scripture, actually, many times over. Anytime the divine presence of God is there, we hear things like Deuteronomy 5.23, when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me. Back in verse 22 of chapter 5, it talks about a cloud and thick gloom. That phrase, thick gloom, so odd, but it is used often of the presence of God, that there's thick gloom surrounding it. My friends, there's emotion and there is passion in this fire, in this blazing fire, this boer baesh at Mount Sinai. How do you know there's passion? Listen to David describe this. Psalm 18, verse eight. Smoke went up out of his nostrils. Fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew and sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, past the thick clouds, hailstone, coals of fire. David, in describing this burning, blazing, passionate God and the thick darkness around it, you know what he's talking about there? David is describing God's response to his distress. I don't think I've ever thought of it that way. I don't think I've ever thought about myself being in a place of anxiety or distress or fear over anything and thinking God is blasting through the heavens with thick darkness and massive fire. You ever think that way? You ever realize the power of the one to whom we cry when we're in distress? See, David understood that. That's why I love David so much. He just seemed to know. Now, Psalm 97, verse two, he says, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And then we hear about the day of the Lord in Joel chapter two, verse one. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. And so here comes the Lord. And listen to how it's described. A day of darkness and gloom and clouds and thick darkness. And that description happens over and over. Amos describes the Lord that way, describes the area around his presence that way with that thick gloom, so does Zephaniah. We keep hearing this, and you might say, but doesn't the Bible say God is light? First John chapter one, verse five, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So what's up with the thick gloom? God is light, listen, and in him there is no darkness at all. In him. But here's the thing. The idea here at Sinai and describing the presence of God is as of a blazing fire, hot and bright and so bright that all the darkness and smoke and gloom are pushed back from his presence. Think of it like a campfire in the, in the forest. You're camping out with your friends now. See, I had to learn this. I think I've shared before that I camped out with my friends after my sophomore year of high school in Yosemite. And our campground was the easiest one to find at night in Yosemite because it was the only one that was pitch black because we didn't bring any wood for the fire. We were learning. But think of a campfire. You're seated around it, but what's behind you? Darkness. 
clouds, thickness. So you, you, you can't even see into the forest beyond, but that fire is bright in front of you. That's the idea here around Mount Sinai. The fire and the voice of God coming out from the fire and the presence of the Lord blazing and burning and all the clouds and thick darkness pushed back from that presence. Ed, Edward uh, J. Woods says, describe the fire and the backdrop of clouds and darkness this way. Thus are held together, listen to this, as one, hiddenness and revelation. Mystery and accessibility. Transcendence and imminence. And he says this, I love this, Yahweh's invisibility also becomes the basis and the potential of his greater accessibility. Do you understand that? His invisibility is what makes him so accessible to us. That is, if he was visible to us this morning, guess where he would be on this Sunday in the world? Right here. Guess where he would not be? At any other church. Now, I'd be okay with that, but all the other churches would not have him there. Guess what? When, if, if he was visible, the visible God, Jesus in the flesh, guess what? If you're driving down the road and, and he was seated beside you, guess where he would not be? anywhere else. But the very mystery of his invisibility makes him immediately accessible to you and to me. Peter even said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Immediate accessibility wherever I am, no matter what's happening, good, bad, or ugly, I have accessibility to the Lord. And that's the marvelous nature of his hiddenness and revelation, his mystery and accessibility, his transcendence and his eminence. He's right here, always right here. I like what Paul says. He's, he's quoting Isaiah 64, and he says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him, he says, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Same Spirit that resides in the heart of the believer. That is awesome. That is overwhelming just to think about. And that begins the fear of the Lord, that we choose. We choose to fear. The fear of the Lord is a known thing, both in mystery and, and in intimacy. The one we revere is at the same time the one who is alluring. I don't know if you've ever thought or used that word to describe Jesus, alluring. There's something wholly attractive, even enthralling about Jesus. That's amazing to me. In a way that, that nobody else is enthralling. If it's weird for you to hear, hear God referred to as enthralling, that's, that's the mystery of God who has revealed himself in Jesus by his spirit, and yet to this day, to this day, he calls us to hear without seeing. Hear without seeing. We choose to fear, and then secondly, we close our eyes to hear. We close our eyes to hear. I'm being incredibly purposeful in that statement. As followers of Jesus Christ, we close our eyes to hear, and I am not talking about blind, stupid religion. I'm talking about closing our eyes to all those things that so easily deceive. Closing our eyes to all the worldly stuff 
that can get in the way so that I can really hear him. I'm not just talking about a physical act of closing my eyes. I'm talking about a spiritual act. We close our eyes to listen in, to hear what the Lord would say to us because God speaks to the heart. He speaks to the heart. He wants us to hear him by heart. I choose to fear and I close my eyes to hear. And you know what? Fearing and hearing do a couple of things to me. Number one, they strengthen my heart. Fearing God, recognizing his splendor and awesomeness, Jesus' majesty, not Jesus' majesty, Jesus' majesty. And that strengthens my heart. It's like, ah, I got confidence now. But it also commands my conscience to trust him and to obey him. And I think about this often, especially in the world in which we live, talking to my parents yesterday, and we're just once again talking about how amazing it is that there are things we talk about as Christians that are now offensive in culture. And, you know, I, I'm dating myself here a bit, but when I was a kid, it wasn't so much that way. Not, as, not like it is now. Things, when I get up here to preach, and I find so often when I'm just teaching the word of God, I know what I'm saying is gonna offend somebody. I know it's gonna be upsetting. You know what? It doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter what my generation thinks. It doesn't matter what society says or approves of. It doesn't even matter what other churches say or approve of. What does God say? What does God say? That's, that's the standard. And it has to be the standard, and it could take us to prisoner death ultimately someday. I hope not, but it could. It has in the church past, hasn't it? Christians who just said, you know, ask for yourselves whether it's right or not for you to believe God, but we have to do what he said. We have to follow what we have seen and heard. We, we gotta talk about this. What does God say? The Bible says, Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So I don't see him, but he sees me. You don't see him but he sees you. It's like that old story, and it's a really old kind of preacher story, but I like it anyway, about the house fire, and the father gets everybody, the whole family out of the house, and they're down on the lawn, and the father looks up, and there's his youngest daughter in the window of the second story as the house is blazing. There's no going back in. There's no getting her out. She's standing up there. There's smoke and haze and fire and blaze, and the father gets under the window and shouts, honey, jump, daddy will catch you. And she cries from the window, I can't see you, daddy. And he says, it's okay, I see you. Jump, I see you. God sees us, he's aware of us, and we are going to have to deal with him, every last one of us. Deuteronomy 4, 12, Moses continues. He says, then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice, only a voice, underscore this, only a voice, they did not see God. Fire, yes, but only a voice coming from the blazing fire. And again, I say it, had, he, had they seen him that day, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Had they seen God that day at Mount Sinai, we wouldn't even be talking about it because all Israel would have been destroyed in an instant and wiped off the pages of history. Had they actually seen him, but they heard his voice. They heard his voice. Why, why is Moses taking them back to this sermon? 
Why is it so important that he's leading them back to that place? Think about he's saying, go back to Mount Sinai. Remember what took place. The blazing fire, the billowing clouds. Remember that. Well, some couldn't. Remember, this is second generation Israel. Second generation out from Egypt. There were people here now who were not even born then. Some standing listening to Moses preach now who were just little children cowering behind their petrified parents. Trembling teenagers, perhaps. And even the strongest warriors were completely shaken. As again, the people cried out and said, you go talk to him. We can't even hear his voice. Remember, Moses says, the voice from the fire. Moses is doing something really important here for Israel, and it would track down through the ages for Israel. He is establishing for them what we would call a fire theophany. A fire Theophany. Now, not to get all theological on you, but, but a theophany is very simply a visible manifestation of God, specifically in the Hebrew Scriptures. A theophany. We often call them Christophanies because if God is physically visible, it's Jesus. He is the physical manifestation of the Father. And so it's a theophany, but a fire theophany. And what's so cool about this, Moses is establishing here an idea for the people of Israel. Think about Sinai. Think about the fire. Why, Moses? Because every time you offer sacrifice, be it at the tabernacle or in the temple, every time that fire goes up from the altar, you'll remember the God who spoke to you from the fire. A fire theophany. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, again, tells us in the New Testament, we don't have the fire theophany. We have Jesus and it's always and only Jesus. Hebrews 1.1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. That's Jesus. So we come into the New Testament and God puts on flesh and dwells among us and suddenly now we are seeing no longer the fire theophany but a physical manifestation of God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. Now here in Deuteronomy 4 and 5, Moses is connecting the words and the voice of Yahweh to this blazing fire. In fact, he connects the voice and the fire seven times in chapters four and five. Interesting. Chapter four, verse 12, 15, 33, and 36. And chapter five, verses four, 22, and 23. And I run through those because you can find them. But the voice of Yahweh from the fire, he says it seven times at the outset of this sermon. Now go back and listen. That phrase I told you, bo'er ba'esh. Bo'er ba'esh, blazed with fire. It's used both here in Deuteronomy chapter four, it's used in chapter five, verse 23, but only those two times it is not used to describe the fire at Mount Horeb. That is back in Exodus. This phrase is only used by Moses here, but it's not used by Moses there when he speaks, when he writes the book of Exodus, chapter 19, verse 18, that says, Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently, but he does not say blazing fire. He just says fire. Ash. The word is ash for fire. Bo'er ba'esh. He says that here twice in chapter four and in chapter five. 
You might go, well, so what? So he says blazed here and he doesn't say it there. Big deal. It is a big deal. It is always a big deal in the Bible because God, as I keep saying to you all, is always intentional with every word he says. So he doesn't just randomly say, oh wait, it was fire there, it's blazing here, I'm just trying to make it more colorful. No, boer boesh is a specific phrase that is used twice here, again, chapter four and chapter five, Moses uses this phrase to describe what happened at Mount Sinai. What's the big deal? That's the phrase that Moses used, same phrase, boer boesh, the same phrase he used to describe his encounter at the burning bush. Exodus chapter three, verse two, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire, boer ba'esh, from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was, and he says it again, burning with fire, boer ba'esh, yet the bush was not consumed. Here's the thing, don't miss this. Moses is equating his calling at the burning bush with Israel's calling at Mount Sinai. Both are calling. Both are equally significant. Both are the blazing fire of God. What Moses effectively is telling the people, my calling and your calling, same calling. To the same God whose voice comes out of the fire. The Boer Boesh. Listen, we choose to fear. We close our eyes to hear. But number three, we are called by Boer. We are called by Boer, blazing fire. This is so important and so many followers of Jesus miss this. They believe that they come to faith in Jesus by their own choice and they start to follow Jesus by their own choice and then they go to church by their own choice and that is the extent of their calling and if you think that, you never made it to Sinai. You miss something here. That if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been called by the same fire that called Paul or Peter, or the apostles, the same fire that called out to Moses and then to Joshua. This is not just about deliverers and commanders. It's not just about pastors and teachers and, and apostles and, and prophets and evangelists. This is every follower's calling. We are called by Boer. We are called by the blazing fire of his passionate love. Every one of us have a calling. Ephesians chapter four, in fact, I'm just gonna turn there real quick. I didn't do this first service, but you gotta see this. Think about this with me. Ephesians chapter four. Galatians and Ephesians chapter four. <laughs> verse 11. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and some as teachers. And there are some believers who say, oh, well, if I'm not one of those, I'm not called. Wrong. Wrong. He gave those five areas of ministry and service. Why? for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man who, uh, to the measure of the stature by which or which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's all of us. We all stand at the mountain. We all see the fire. We all hear the voice, the voice that calls you. Do you remember? And I'm talking to Christians here. Do you remember being called by his blazing love? Now, some would say, oh, yes, I remember. I remember when God called me, don't you, Les? And he turned your life upside down and flipped you all around. And it was a power, you'll hear Les talk about this, it was a power encounter with God. My calling as a 10-year-old boy was not a power encounter. 
It was a quiet little, I think I want to get baptized and follow Jesus. And if you'd asked me earlier on in my life, I might have said, I don't know that I ever heard a blazing voice, passionate love. I just kind of started following. But you know what? Over years and years, I've learned to fear the Lord, and I have had encounters with God that were blazing fire. That is not, by the way, the standard of righteousness. I'm not saying if you haven't had a blazing fire experience, actually what I'm saying to you is guess what? If you this morning can say you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have had a blazing fire experience. You may not know it, but the blazing fire isn't your reaction to God, it is his love for you. That's what blazes, that's what burns, that's the calling. We are called by Boer, by a blazing passion, a passionate love. Second Corinthians 4, 6, God who said light shall shine out of darkness, he is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And you have been called by that calling. God calls us by this blazing, passionate love. In the face of Christ. Now, some would say, yeah, but I haven't seen him. We love to tell those stories, especially in Muslim countries, of experiences of people seeing Jesus. You know, visions of Jesus. Hey, did you hear about this? I read about the vision of Jesus. I I don't discount that in the least. Jesus will do whatever he needs to get our attention. But if you're one of those going, but I've never seen him. I'm not even sure if I've heard him. I want to affirm to you this morning that if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you have faith in him, you have heard him. And in essence, you have seen him because Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, and Peter had, by the way, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him right now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Joy inexpressible, just at the name of Jesus. Again, what does that name do to you? We choose to fear. We close our eyes to hear. We are called by Boer, that blazing, passionate love of God. And all of that, Leads us to what I really wanted to talk about this morning, verse 13. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, literally the Ten Devarim, the Ten Words. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you're going over to possess it. The Ten Devarim. He says, So watch yourselves carefully. Now Moses is going to start this application process. Watch yourselves carefully. Since you did not see any form on the day, the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is upon the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth, and beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away to worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Did you notice what Moses just did? He just told creation in reverse. He started with male and female, 
and then went to animal, and then birds, and then creeping things, and then fish, and then sun, moon, and stars. And if you go back to Genesis 1, it's a creation story, but it's backwards. That actually starts with sun, moon, and stars, and then goes to fish and creeping things and on through the list. Moses reverses it here and says, don't make a form, an image of any of these things going backward down through the list. And listen, to make an idol, an image, a shape, a statue, or a form of anything is to try to reverse the will of God. It's making God's will backwards. It's flipping things upside down. Moses is now, what he's gonna do is begin making practical application of the 10 commandments. And he's gonna do it all the way through the whole next section. Chapter five, he will repeat all 10 of the commandments in a row, and then he'll begin to make application. But before we get there, he's already applying the first two of the 10 words. The first two, Exodus chapter 20, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself any idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. Okay, listen. We still struggle with this so much. We have such an issue with this very thing. I, I grew up going to church, many of you know that, and I heard sermons on idolatry. And you'd hear about idols and you'd go, okay, idols. Yeah, I, I, can, I can figure that. Idols, like our cars. Our cars are, are, are idols or our houses. You know, my dad does a lot of work around the house on the weekends, that's kind of an idol, you know? So dad's house, mom's car, my Verdi Bird helicopter set could be an idol spend a lot of time with it, and we try to make these kind of silly little comparisons to idolatry, and we miss what's going on here. This is a big deal, I, ho I hope you get this. I, I told everybody when I started first service, this is one of those things that you can hear superficially and skip right over the surface, or you can hear with your heart and get what God really is trying to say to us here. Here's the problem. We all, every one of us, and I'm talking about us sitting here in this room as well as the rest of the world around us, we have trouble with this because the natural man, the natural woman gravitates to the things we can grasp, the things that our eyes can see, images, uh, idols, things that are material or physical or tangible or corporeal, the things of the natural world. That's what the natural self wants to do. And it's in the church as well. All you gotta do is start listening to preaching. And I, I, I said this for a service too. I kinda like to go back and just erase 18 years of preaching because of all the things I've said that I wish I hadn't said. It's all there on record now. But I, I, right now I'm listening to a, a podcast I mentioned last week. Thanks a lot, Hillary, for getting me on this one. Uh, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I, I mentioned that, and, and it talks about Mark Driscoll, senior pastor of Mars Hill, and the whole Mars Hill movement in Seattle and how it got to be so massive and then imploded overnight. And what went wrong, and what's going on in church culture? And so far, the first four of the five podcasts that are available were really interesting, really informative, especially the second one talking about church culture, and I'm like, oh, wow, and making me as a pastor think. And I got to the fifth one, and I did not like it at all. Neither did Hillary. Because it's all about the preaching of sexuality at Mars Hill and, and Mark Driscoll's focus on sexuality. And he always said, in marriage, focusing on sexuality in marriage, but preaching it in such a way that elevated the man and made the woman subservient to the man and all of his sexual desires in marriage. 
and I'm listening to this, and, I'm, and they're, they're talking about it in all these different ways, and it's, it, it was bugging me, and it's bugging me and bugging me, and I'm thinking, why is this bothering me so much? And I started to realize, you know how much time we spend at church in sermons talking about physical, tangible, material things? Even sex and marriage? What are we missing here? Why is it that the church is so hung up on, I want to see stuff. I want to experience tangible. I want to be able to put my finger on it and say, see, now that, that is, a, is an act of God, or that's a thing. Why do we so want physical experience in the church today? And do we have our idols? Are we the ones that Paul was talking about? Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The creator who presented himself with voice, no form. Words without form. God said, no representations. God said, no configurations, no prefabrications for our worship. God said, no statues to kiss, no carvings to bless or, or paintings to adore, no Madonna and child statues, statues to genuflect before. If you come from a Catholic background, I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm just telling you, what did God say? What did God say? What does his word declare? You don't have to agree with me, but you gotta take this one up with God. You might say, well, if Jesus took human form, can't we at least make human representations of him to help us in our worship? Or maybe a representation of Mary or Joseph or, or of the saints? And this is rampant throughout the church in all kinds of ways. What about crosses? What about dove symbols? What about crowns or church logos or all the little crowns of thorns or all the little images that we have produced and we slap on logos and we have them on our cars and we have them in our church buildings and everywhere? Images. When God said, no, images. And this is such a big deal to God. I've got friends, I've got a, a dear friend, uh, a couple Cheryl and I know and have known for many, many years and he's an artist he is a, a, a crafter of wood and an amazing artist. He carves wood for churches. And he carves everything from pulpits and crosses to St. Christopher's to Mary's, you know, the Madonna and child image to, to Jesus. I mean, whatever the church wants, they put in the order and, and he can craft it. And he is amazing. God said no images. What are we doing? And someone might say, well, Certainly, it's okay to have dramatic presentations of Jesus and the apostles in Christian-produced series and streaming. I know I'm on thin ice. Allow me to skate for a moment. I have yet to see The Chosen. How many of you have seen The Chosen? You're not gonna be judged for seeing The Chosen. I've heard great things. If you haven't heard about The Chosen, I had one, pe one person come up to me after first service and say, hey, I'd never heard of that. I'm gonna go buy that now. I'm like, oh, great, that's it. That's fine, that's fine, and, and listen to me before I say anything else. I'm not saying don't watch it, but please hear what I think the Lord is trying to say to us this morning. I haven't seen The Chosen, I've seen The Passion. I, I watched that, I've seen it twice. The second time was even harder to watch than the first time. I have seen Jesus of Nazareth, 
How Jesus ever got away with a British accent in that movie, I'm not sure. But I saw that. I saw the Jesus movie. I've seen multiple other film representations of Jesus. Now, one thing I can tell you, that it raises just a, not a red flag, maybe a little slightly pink flag, but in all the other film representations of Jesus that I've seen, the words of Jesus in the script have always been limited to the scriptures and not given creative license. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying and regardless of the good intentions of filmmakers or craftsmen or artisans or church decorators, John said, 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, little children, guard yourselves from what? Idols. I've struggled my whole Christian life to figure out what that means. Guard yourself from idols. I don't have idolatry in my life. I'm not an idol worshiper. I may even spend extra care Washing and, and, and waxing my beautiful 2013 Kia Soul. <laughs> but it's not an idol for me. Come on. I don't worship this stuff, so it's not idolatry. Guard yourselves from idols. John says to the church, and I'm going, how does that apply? Forget for a second the way we've always used to think about idolatry. Cars and stuff, and, you know, I, I make too much big a deal out of my sports you know, the game on Sunday, it's idolatry. Forget that for a minute. This is way bigger, way bigger. And when it comes to movies like The Chosen, or series, I am not questioning the intent of its creator. Dallas Jenkins is the creator. In christianfilmblog.com, Jenkins asked viewers to remember that The Chosen is, quote, not a verse-by-verse reenactment of the biblical narrative but instead a historical character drama that's inspired by the Bible. I really feel for Jenkins because he's come under all kinds of fire from Christians who say, Jesus wouldn't do that. Or you, you, you represented something that wasn't even, didn't even happen in the Bible. And so he's like, I'm just trying to put a, you know, a positive out there. I'm trying to get Jesus out there. He said, or it says it's also something Jenkins, who is a lifelong Christian, hopes that God will use for eternal purposes. So I'm not saying don't watch The Chosen or The Passion or The Jesus of Nazareth or any of those things. Some of you have come to me, you said, yeah, Rick, The Chosen is so good. It makes Jesus so real and so personable and, and, and so authentic and relatable. Listen, just listen to me for a second. What if the actor really isn't like Jesus was at all? Well, he has to be. He's so gentle. Okay, I, I understand. I understand that. What if the actor is acting in such a way that Jesus would not have, even in subtle ways? What if the scripts or storylines unintentionally misrepresent what really happened? I happen to know in The Chosen that they plug in some other possible ideas that might explain why this certain event took place. It's not in the Bible. I'm not saying it didn't happen. It may have. And you might say, Rick, you're being real, really legalistic. Well, listen to this. What if creative license of the producers blurs my recall of Scripture? I'm not saying don't watch it. But how many of you have trouble recalling Scripture? 
And how many of you, I mean, think about this. What if my memory of actual biblical events starts to get muddied and mashed up with the character drama such that now I'm confusing fact with fiction? Now, I assume, as one sister also after first service came up and told me, she said, I've seen The Chosen, and she says, she says I am so thankful that I'm, well, her words, I'm thankful I'm at a Bible teaching church because I sit there and I go, okay, that's not biblical, that's cool, that's not biblical, and, and I can take it and, and, and I can think it through. And I say to all of you, have a Bible nearby. Consider anything that you watch like this, consider it from a biblical perspective, just make sure you know what's true and what's fiction. That's, that's really all I'm saying about the chosen. It's not a don't watch, it's just watch with discernment. Here's the problem. How many people are watching the chosen who have never read a word of scripture and they think that's the Bible? And it's not. It's an artistic representation. I'm not saying a bad one. And again, I'm not saying don't watch it. <laughs> we gotta deal with this. And here's my point. And if you think this is about the chosen this morning, you're skipping off the surface. We have to deal with the fact that God said no images. No images. Can you describe Jesus? Here this morning, if I asked you, give me a list of physical characteristics of Jesus, could you do it? I've seen everything from the white, effeminate, enlightenment Jesus. You know the one in the paintings? He's pasty white and he has the curls coming down that every woman would love to have. I'm like, okay, that was the artistic rendering back then. I've, I've seen, I don't know, the stoic British Jesus we talked about, Jesus of Nazareth. I've seen the hippie Jesus. You know, I've seen the blonde-haired, blue-eyed surfer Jesus. I can't figure that one out. <laughs> Seriously, put the dude in, in trunks and on a surfboard, and it would work. I've seen the hook-nosed Middle Eastern Jewish Jesus, which is probably the more accurate of any that I've seen, but it's still not Jesus. That's not Jesus. He has been cartooned, lampooned, and assumed even in the church, and it's not him. In the Gospels, in the New Testament, you will not find a single physical pre-resurrection description of Jesus. We have the description of him in his glory in Revelation chapter one. You know what's not described there? Other than fiery eyes and white hair, you don't get a physical description of his face. Why not? Because God knows we would post it everywhere and worship it. We would look to it. We would focus on it. We would use our eyes thinking that was faith, but faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We can assume from the Bible one other thing physically about Jesus. One thing we can know. We can know he had a beard because Isaiah 50 verse six says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Beyond that, no physical representation of Jesus or Father Yahweh anywhere in the Bible. Why not? I understand Yahweh being so fearsome, so awesome that to present himself to man would just kill us. Oh, I get that. But then he came in flesh. Why don't we have a nice description in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John of how Jesus looked so that we could make posters and put them up in our rooms and wake up in the morning and pray to Jesus because that's exactly what we would do. What's the point of words without form? Back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, follow this through. 
or chapter, sorry, chapter four, verse 20. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. And the Lord was angry with me on your account, Moses talked about, because of what I did, and swore that I would not cross the Jordan, that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. I will die in this land, Moses says. I shall not cross the Jordan, but you shall cross and take possession of this good land. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God, verse 24, is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Jealous, Elkanah. I've told you that word before is only applied to God in the Bible. It is not jealousy like our jealousy that is easily threatened. It is Elkanah, divine, godly jealousy, which is passionate and fiery and blazing. And his is the voice from the blazing fire who called Israel, note this, called Israel out of the iron furnace, out of the frying pan and into the fire. The voice of a, of a fiery God, a fire who consumes, called them out of the iron furnace of Egypt. So it's out of the iron furnace, but it's right into the fire of his presence. Why? Because God's fire is a fire that burns away sin and it burns away pride and it burns away self-sufficiency and most of all, it burns away our physical, material desire. It burns the flesh right off of us. God's fire. The focus on flesh and the fleshly Things. The Hebrew pastor said in Hebrews 12, 28, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. He's the God we choose to fear. We close our eyes to hear who calls us by Boer, this blazing fire, who says no images, no forms, nothing like that. Why, God, why is that such a big deal? Number four, so we could come near. So we could come near. Because you know what idols do? They come between you and God. They don't allow you to see him for who he is. All these things are static, limited, lifeless, material icons, and they get in the way of a pure relationship with God, and he is blazingly passionate about our relationship. So he says, Rick, put nothing between us, no form of any kind that would lead you to think that that's me, because that's not me. I don't care how good the actor is, that's not Jesus. And God is simply saying to you, to me, I'm not saying don't watch it. He's simply saying to you and to me, I want you to know me as I am. You want a good show to watch? Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Hear about Jesus. Look to Jesus. Verse 25 Moses says, when you become the father of children and children's children have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you're going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but shall be utterly destroyed. And that is prophecy, my friends, because that's exactly what happened 
Israel was destroyed because of idolatry. The northern kingdom of Israel wiped out by Assyria because they were deeply depraved with idolatry. The southern kingdom of Judah taken off into captivity in Babylon after that because they were so into idols, God said, I'll take you to capital city of idols and you can see how until you're sick of it. And what's interesting is that as Moses prophesies this, he says the phrase remained long when you have remained long in the land, what's fascinating is that phrase, remained long, it's yashen in the Hebrew. Don't have to write this down, but just check this out. Yashen in the Hebrew has a numerical value. Every Hebrew word does. Hebrew letters are Hebrew numbers. So every word has a numerical value to it. The, the numerical value of the word yashen is 582. Guess how long they were in the land before they got wiped out? 582 years from when Moses gave the warning to when the Assyrians came in and wiped out the northern kingdom. Moses is warning, this is what happens. If you get something between you and God, it'll wipe you out. It'll mess you up. It'll take you the wrong direction. God says, come near, come near. Come near to me. Verse 27, the Lord, Moses says, will scatter you among the peoples. Prophetically, he's speaking. You'll be left few in number. It happened among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods and the work of man's hand, wood and stone, which neither see, hear, eat, nor smell. And by the way, even film representations of Jesus don't see, hear, eat, or smell. Wait a minute, Rick. I'm sure they see and hear and eat and smell. I mean, you know, they got to have a coffee break that, you know, they hit cut and they go eat at the cafe, right? No, no. Listen, when you watch those movies, the Jesus in those movies, any of those movies does not see you, hear you, cannot respond to you, does not re-answer your prayers. It's not Jesus. It's an actor. It's a portrayal. It's a form. God presented himself as word without form. Verse 29, but there, from there you will seek the Lord your God. Note that. From there you will seek the Lord your God, not the idols of wood and stone, the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your eyes and all your fingers can touch. Are you reading along with me? You will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. That's how God is found, how Jesus is known. It says in verse 30, when you're in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. Verse 30 is the first statement of the tribulation in the Bible. That in the latter days, this will happen. The nation of Israel will be in deep distress. Jacob's distress, it's called in Jeremiah 30, verse seven. And in that moment, you're gonna cry out to the Lord. He's gonna hear you because you're gonna search for him with heart and with soul. For the Lord, verse 31, your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. Come near. Moses says, come near. That's what the whole idolatry thing is about. Anything that would keep me from coming near to God as he is, to Jesus as he is, let nothing get in the way, no form, no image, no physical representation. Instead, come near. Psalm 73, 25, David says, who have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, 
But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, as for me, David says, as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Come near, come near. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. Come near. She came at a lonely hour, high noon, when no one else typically came to draw water from the well. Many of you know the story very well. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, John chapter 4. By the way, back in verse 4 of John 4, it says he had to pass through Samaria, and now we know why. He had to meet with this woman. And he begins to talk to her, and he begins to relate And Jesus engages her. It's such a marvelous story how Jesus talks with her and questions her and she answers him and and he engages her in such a way that this woman who came to the well to draw, Jesus now draws thirst out of her that can only be quenched in him. He says, you know, I, I, I get it. You've had five husbands. You've been with five men and the guy you're with now isn't even your husband. I get it, your life's a mess begins to tell her about herself and and draw her in, alluring truly her by his grace, by his compassion, by his truth. And and finally, she says in verse 19 of John 4, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain or in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, and you people say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she goes all theological on him, and Jesus says, woman, believe me, An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, Jewish people, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in what? Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship, Jesus said, in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christos, and when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What does that story do to you? I know what it does to me. Every time I read it, I'm like, he is so cool. Jesus is so good. He's so gracious. He's so compassionate and yet so completely honest. Look at how he deals with her, even calling out all of the failure of her life without judging. She doesn't feel judged. It's like, how does he do that? And I read these stories of Jesus like this and it moves my heart. Do you see Jesus? You get a sense of his gentleness and tenderness and compassion and grace. Guess what is not included in John chapter four? A video representation. A study guide that you can pop up on the screen. No image of Jesus whatsoever. And yet, guess what? You know him. You know him because you hear him. Because you see him with a heart of of faith. Just the word without form. And it remains to this day so that we could come near to him in spirit and in truth. We can get, you can't get nearer to Jesus through an idol. 
through a form, through a representation. Just Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is God's answer to every issue facing us in our culture and in human life. This is God's answer to sexual and gender identity issues. Jesus. Knowing Jesus. It's God's answer to existential crises. It's God's answer to intellectual pride. I got it all together. You need to know Jesus, bro. It's God's answer to ecclesiastical arrogance such as we have in the church. It's Jesus. It's God's answer to relational conflict and even fear. COVID, fear of disease, fear of the Delta variant, fear of all these things. God's answer is Jesus. Fear of death itself, God's answer is Jesus. And all of these other things, they come from focusing on iconic, idolatrous flesh. Thinking about things in terms of the physical rather than entering into the one who is spirit and is truth. Jesus says, worship the Father in spirit and truth. In other words, come near. Come near. Indeed, Moses said, ask now concerning the former days which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything been done like this great thing? Or has anything been heard like it? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of fire as you have heard and survived? And we can answer yes, that until this point, no people, no people, individuals had heard God, no people as a group had heard God speaking from the fire until now. Moses and the people at Sinai. But guess what? Happened again. At Pentecost, beneath tongues of fire, God not only spoke, but he began to pour out his spirit so we could come near in spirit and in truth to the word without form. Father, Lord Jesus, Spirit of the living God, we speak now to the one who we don't see with our eyes, but we hear with our hearts. We come now to the one, Lord, you were so intentional. I'm beginning to understand why you, even with Jesus, never gave us a physical description. I begin to understand now why John said to the church, little children, guard yourselves from idols. I begin to see, Lord, that it is all about drawing near to you. For the nearness of God is my good. Spirit of the living God, I ask you now to send out the invitation to come near. There are some here this morning, right here and now, who have been distant some Christians, some people who have claimed Christ and been followers of Christ, but, but have been distant, have kept you at arm's length. And I pray, Father, for that brother, that sister, this morning, he or she would hear you say, come near. For those who have never chosen Lord Jesus to accept you as Savior in spirit and in truth. Oh, Jesus, this morning I pray the one thing that would be heard from this is come near, come near. And I pray this spirit move among us in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.